Hello and welcome to the Lodgers Sword of Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined, as always, by the fabulously talented Kate Renabom. Hello, Simon. And returning guest, Olivier Cure. Hello, hello, hello. Um. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, part eight. What are, what are we doing here, people? What, how what are can we, we doing? I, what are we doing? I don't know. How do we even start? How do we start? Well, maybe we can start with this, uh, just a general note. I think that, you know, something that we discussed a lot about the original run of Twin Peaks was this notion of, you know, 36 million people watch the pilot and, you know, X million people watch the following episodes. And in general, in the 90s, way more people watch television. Um, and, you know, that, and we talked about sort of TV as a collective experience, which is cool. Uh, and, you know, the 90s had that sense of what that meant. Um, what's cool about this Twin Peaks is that, believe it or not, that collective experience is not gone. It's just gone global. It was incredible to me to watch Twin Peaks actually trend globally uh, because people all over the world are seeing this basically simultaneously and all just having their minds blown and all just uh, in- enjoying the spectacle of it, which um, I can't, I mean, I figured that was probably going to happen at some point, but I didn't know it was going to happen to the degree that we saw this Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I this is going to be a hard episode to get through because in terms of like the tendency to just want to hyperbolize, because I mean, that's, that's mm. sort of what I want to do. Like, it's hard not, it's hard to resist claims like, that episode was the greatest episode of television. I mean, it's hard to resist that kind of stuff. And and I, I think there is so much um, credit and like awe that should be given to sort of Lynch specifically and, and Frost and, and the whole team involved, but like also Showtime. I mean, basically the fact that the universe came together for a very brief moment and allowed an artist to, to make something like this and get it out into the world in a way that can be seen by everybody. I mean, I think it, the amount of attention that's been given to it and the fact that it has been so successful. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I know there are detractors of the episode out there and it's just not going to be for everybody, obviously, but um, I don't know. I mean, the, the way, the way that Lynch not only managed to make this happen, but like stuck the landing and got, you know, a, an 11 or whatever the extra number you can get on gymnastic scales is, I don't know. Like he just, <laughs> he, he blew this away. I mean, it like, this is, I don't know. I, it's a gift. Like, I, I can't, I can't, I feel thrilled to have been able to witness this. Like, really. Like, again, this is me hyperbolizing, but I feel quite, uh, like, hashtag blessed <laughs> to get to uh, watch this, you know. Uh, Olivier, yeah. I, I know you were in the same room yeah. at the same time watching the same episode for the first time. So um, maybe the question, maybe the answer is obvious, but are you similarly prone to hyperbole here? Yes, absolutely. I We were both just sitting completely still, like just quivering in our seats as we watch the episode. Um, and, you know, this line that's come up in think pieces in the last couple of days, you know, referencing Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project, you know, Oppenheimer citing the Bhagavad Gita saying, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. For an episode so like laden with destruction and horror, it, it created its own new world. And it not only created like an extension of Twin Peaks, the universe of Twin Peaks, it created a, a new a new televisual world for people who've never really seen anything like that, whether it's television or cinema. 
And I have just been equally, like the two of you, so thrilled to not just read people um, just writing ecstatic things about the episode, but uh, just hearing people in real life, like people I, I interact with every day, just have, they've experienced something completely new. Uh, and I think that's a huge, that's a huge deal. And just a credit to the thing that Lynch and Frost are doing this season, which is just right. opening this door for a lot of people. So I'm excited to talk about that. Uh, we should probably, yeah, we should talk about this concept of, of completely new or not. But first I want to, uh, give myself a bit of credit and, um, eat a little bit of crow in the space of a few sentences. So first of all, do you remember when last episode I said to you and I said to the Lodgers audience, shows teach you how to watch them in a maxim I actually picked up from my uh, previous co-host, Kate Kulzik, and over at the Televerse. And the show it was teaching us that when it gave us something we could kind of expect, we were probably going to get a harsher reaction in the opposite direction. And I'm just going to say that I called that. So I'm going to, I don't often call things. So I'm going to take it. I'm going to just hold that close. However, last week, you may also remember that I complained that the show wasn't really doing anything or it broadly wasn't doing much with the possibilities of the episode format, which I think this episode completely... Look, I, I don't think that undoes my complaint about much of the first seven, but clearly this at least proves that there is some awareness of what can be done with the with the constraints of, you know in this case now, like a, a 58 to 60 minute, uh, essentially short film. Um, and also that is, you know, telling you something about a broader story. Yeah. Clearly that is a canvas they are thinking about, or at least thought about this week. So credit to Lynch and Frost as aforementioned. I think maybe one place we can start this conversation is when the show was first announced, uh, Showtime's David Nevins, was talking about how the show was like pure uncut Lynch, like pure Lynch straight to your veins, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, I think it's fair to say we've gotten, but I think it's also fair to say, and maybe this was sort of unexpected that I think this episode features a lot that is kind of uncharacteristic of Lynch. I think like kind of a lot, and maybe that's a good starting place because I mean I don't know about you and obviously there has been a lot of scholarship that has compared Lynch to other directors or sort of considered him in you know the greater film canon but a lot of the discussion around Lynch is you know he he pulls things from his subconscious he's this you know not he's got this childlike naivete and it's sort of you know he he exists in the world of the Lynchian and that no one else can really access and yet in a lot of the discussion around this episode you know we were um we uh, we discussed things like uh, Peter Sochatsky's Outer Space, where people brought up Stan Brakhage or Stanley Kubrick or Terrence Malick's recent work, and I feel like that's a relatively new phenomenon, um, at least in terms of the popular conversation around Lynch. Would would y'all agree? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a rare point. I think that Lynch <clears throat> stylistically makes references to other filmmakers. I mean, I think. Uh, there are some sort of content moments in Lynch's history when, you know, for example, like the the original one of Twin Peaks, the character of Laura and the names like Waldo Lidecker and everything are all references to Otto Preminger's film, Laura. So, you know, like there there are things, and he's a big fan of uh, Sunset Boulevard, so there are references to Sunset Boulevard, like this kind of and stuff. And The Wizard is, of Oz, yeah. And Wizard of Oz, exactly. Like those things are there, but it, it doesn't it doesn't tend to happen so much at the level of um, 
form or structure uh, in this kind of way that it is in this episode, which I think we should dig into more as well. I mean, I think for me, one of the things that watching this episode, just to like build on what you're saying, Simon, is, um, I don't know how it's worth remarking on here in this episode that, uh, you know, Lynch is 70 years old. And I, and I think Byron was talking about this a little bit when he was on, like this idea that, that Lynch has gotten in trouble a lot in his career with people sort of complaining that he repeats himself or that he relies too much on things that are his shtick and that he doesn't go anywhere or do anything new. And, um, I, I I just was sort of blown away by like how how much a lot of this did not feel like Lynch. Like how how there are yes these clear references to things like Eraserhead and and we have this sort of maybe return to his kind of like experimental filmmaker beginnings, which I don't think ever went anywhere. But like this isn't maybe in a purer form. Um, there's all of that there, but there also is a way in which I just think there are so many things that are very different here than anything we've seen from him before, and I. I don't know. I, I, I was blown away by that. I mean, I think that's a pretty remarkable thing, sort of his ability to keep topping himself. Uh, I will say it's not a thing that's so common with filmmakers, you know, like white male filmmakers that age who are given money. It, they tend to make crappier things as they get older, not more exciting, interesting things. So anyway, I'll, I'll leave that to your imagination as to who I'm talking about, listeners. But it's, uh, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it was it was nice that that, you know, finally we have something that's debunked the notion that Lynch has only seen Laura and Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> like clearly, he's seen a lot of stuff. But I think one thing that really struck me in this episode was just the the a kind of level of fluency with the the digital domain that uh, you know we kind of saw hints of in the first few episodes. A lot of experimentation. Um, Kate, I think, talked about uh, here in this podcast and writing for Cinemascope this idea of like flatness. Uh, in using in using digital effects, digital imagery, this episode just had a, a plethora of, of digital experimentation. Whether it's the the Trinity test sequence, you know, literally going into an atomic bomb, to the unbelievable sequence with the um, these like shadow ash figures in front of the convenience store, um, which you know, if for people out there who have done some some video editing in traditional digital programs recalled that thing where you scrub over audio and you're kind of like jumping very intensely, very quickly through different bits of audio. There's this, yeah, there's this like unraveling this, this attention to digital forms that I think is so new for Lynch. And yeah, it, it took on a whole new, a uh, whole new approach in this episode. which I thought was really interesting, but at the same time, the digital also kind of in a way allows them to become borderline precious sometimes like Kate and I talked about this a little bit the sequence um, with the giant in the 1940s space um, there's a level in the the digital imagery there that becomes borderline precious or like cutesy uh, which is also very new for Lynch I think there's a level of preciousness in things like a razor head for example but here it's, it's a little bit different but yeah what no. specific imagery are you thinking of when you're talking about preciousness I you know I was thinking a lot of the you know the the sort of gears that form in the space, you know, the, the, the cinema theater or the ceiling. Yeah. And like, the, there's just something about the, the CGI that, that has this weird precious feeling also just the set decoration there. Um, but not to say that that's necessarily bad. It's just a, it just feels like a very different register for Lynch, but mm -hmm. in the whole, I think that the, the digital experimentation was like a big part of the, the success for me of this episode. So, Maybe 
since we sort of broadly discussed the experimental aspects, it's maybe worth pausing a moment to talk about the structure of the episode. Um, and then, and then, Simon, can we spend like the next hour just talking about the experimental stuff? Because that's all I want to talk about. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, absolutely. So we, let's get the, let's get the first fifteen minutes out of the way then. So we we open obviously with the um, with that sort of slightly distended sequence between Ray and Evil Coop. Um, nice reversal of expectations where literally everyone expected uh, Ray to get iced this week, and essentially the opposite happens. Pretty uh, pretty canny bit of writing there. We're, obviously, there's another important part to what happens immediately after that sequence that we need to talk about. But I find, since there's not a lot of specific plot stuff that we want to discuss this week, probably, I do find the concept fascinating that maybe um, the the uh, maybe Bob has actually been removed from Evil Coop. In which case, is Coop going to come back in two different bodies? <laughs> No, I, I mean, I don't think so, because this is one of those things that's like, uh, people have been sort of talking about this a lot, right? But I mean, I think he's he's an evil doppelganger anyway, right? He's not Coop. He's he's like, he's the opposite of Coop, regardless of whether Bob is with him or not. I mean, I, I think it's sort of being set up that like, the, the, the ability to hold Bob is like a currency. Like Bob, Bob gives you some kind of power or something. I mean, it, like we're sort of set up to believe that there's going to be this retribution now or these problems for evil Cooper now that Bob has been taken away from him or something. I don't know. Problems other than getting shot a bunch of times. <laughs> well, he, he got over it though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He got over it after he got his blood and Bob dug out. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Which uh, uh, which also happens to be honestly one of the most poetic things I think Lynch has ever filmed. That whole sequence—it's like the unsung hero of this episode. That sequence is just something extraordinary that I hope we can dig into a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it connects very strongly to the imagery that comes later. But I mean, okay, let's just get something out of the way real quick. The Nine Inch Nails. Oh yeah, and their four and a half minutes of this episode, or their five minutes of this episode. Why do we think that's there? Is there a reason? Is it just to provide a buffer? Is it like just like an entract type thing, or like what do we think? I mean, I had I had similar thoughts about that. This idea of it being kind of an entract, but I, like for me, watching it, the, watching the episode the first time, I think what was going on was that I was so I was so blown away by this intervening sequence with with uh, Evil Coop and the bodies over him. Like I was so blown away by that, and it has such it has such a strong handle on like its mood, and it's so affecting that for me, like when you get into the Nine Inch Nails sequence. For me, it works well in terms of extending this sort of sense of kind of violence mixed with like foreboding and uh, I don't know, just sort of like anger and pain, like all of these sort of unpleasant affects. Like it, it does a really good job of extending that. And then at about the two minute mark, you kind of like you start shaking that off a little bit and you're like, oh, OK, like we're in this for a while. There's like another two minutes still of this song to go. And I, it's like, I don't know, it's a question there. Like it's almost to throw back a little bit to the floor sweeping sequence the previous week i bet the nine inch nails would love that i would compare them to a shot of a floor being swept but um like <laughs> the the nine inch nail sequence like it, it it works um interestingly in relation to what comes after in the episode in the sense that because the nine inch nail sequence like functions as a sort of normal diegetic space that has like just a beginning and an end 
it's one of the only places in the episode where you feel time drag, which is saying something for an episode with a 15 minute experimental interlude and then two new sequences with like characters you don't know and, and sort of plots and narrative structures you're unfamiliar with. Like that's saying something that this scene kind of drags. And I, I don't think it's meant to be like a negative thing. I mean, I think it's meant to be a space in which you kind of Lynch is giving you a moment to like get your bearings. Like you, you kind of are like given the space where you're, you're sort of, you're able to pull out of the episode a little bit and take a break. And then when Lynch hits you with the next scene, it's like, holy, you know, I won't swear, but just holy crap, there's crazy stuff happening. (laughs) Part of me couldn't help but recall that Reznor is one of the people who's had like a relatively long working history with Lynch, like going back to Lost Highway, at least. Yeah. Um, Probably they've been friendly since the early 90s, so... Part of me is like, okay, so they're getting to do this whole sequence because they're pals and like maybe if they weren't pals, we'd only be getting two and a half minutes. But I I think there is something to this notion of it's sort of a um, buffer slash palate cleanser slash, yeah, some some sort of like disarming device right before it hits you with the nuclear bomb. Um, I I think there's there's something to be said uh, maybe for the whole episode about this idea of Lynch having such a sharp awareness of of pacing and structure and and movement and how, again, it's maybe another kind of unsung hero that lets an episode like this work. I mean, I think, I think for people who are, who are not necessarily like film nerds and, and don't study this stuff, it's, I think it's easy to look at an episode like that and think that the decisions made were arbitrary or like that, you know, Lynch just sort of wanted to get some crazy stuff in there. So he gets crazy stuff in there and it's all just sort of arbitrary. I, I, I think that's, uh, like an incredible, um, misjudgment of of the skill that's involved in Lynch's ability to to modulate these kind of moves between one space and the next, between one mood and the next, between one like set of sort of visual experiences and sonic experiences and the next. And he has such a sharp ability to do that. Like and a lot of that requires slowing down, like requires slowing things down. And the other one I'm thinking of here is the shot where we go across the sort of purple sea again and we get a very slow extended uh move up the side of this building and then through a window before we start the kind of black and white sequence with the giant. And like, you know, I mean, what purpose does that serve? Like it, it not a narrative purpose certainly, but it 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 allows you to kind of like live in the space of this exper- these experimental images without becoming sort of overwhelmed or oversaturated or something. And I, I just think that's great. I think he's a master at that stuff. Yeah. I think, too, the, the whole episode, to me, felt very musical in terms of its, its narrative momentum. It's a sequence of movements. And the Nine Inch Nails uh, sequence is just like yet another movement in an overall structure. But I think, Kate, that's a, that's a really great idea there this kind of this evolving sense of space and i think what strikes me about that sequence with the band you know if you were to remove the nine inch nails i think it would still do something similar which is giving you a new conception of the roadhouse it's just reusing the space of the roadhouse in a way that is that is sure like diegetically uh you know coherent for that four or five minutes but it's still it's still a uh it's like a complicating of, of expectations there on what the roadhouse is, what, what it's been in previous episodes, how bands are presented there. You know, you often have narrative moments that, that occur as bands are playing. And this, when it comes up, it's like, you know, is this even the roadhouse? It feels very different. It's very, it's a very aggressive space. Um, and, you know, temporally, it's very interesting because the roadhouse, of course, as we know, has been used exclusively near the end of episodes for the most part. 
and here it's near the beginning. So there is this, this general, yes, reuse of space and kind of like thwarting of expectations that I think is a little bit clever, even though you're just seeing a, a band play for f- four or five minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We, we'll, we'll probably have occasion to keep talking about the other aspects of the, the pre um, shenanigans. Maybe we should get into the <laughs> shenanigans. Um, so I trust y'all to really break down the images more specifically than I probably will or could. Um, but maybe the first thing I wanted to point out about everything that's starting from the blast is I know we all freaked out about sort of the form of the episode and how these, this, how distended this, this experimental sequence is and blah, blah, blah. But I think to me, maybe what's most notable about this whole, you know, majority of the episode is that yes, there's a lot of, you know, really abstract, big, um, unusual for Lynch, uh, sort of CGI heavy imagery being deployed, but it's all in service of what is for Lynch, like relatively legible concepts. Um, and, you know, we, we, we probably don't want to spend too much time talking about how it connects to the plot or themes of the show, because I think that's something that will probably unravel more as we go along. But, I mean, things like, uh, and I'm, I, yeah, I'm not just talking about sort of the on-the-noseness of using the, and ILX expects me to pronounce this correctly, the Krzysztof Pendereski. I'm oh, sure Pendereski, I did that wrong. Uh, no, no, it's actually Pendereski. I looked this up. Is it? What? Yeah. yeah really? It's Pol- yeah, it's a Polish thing. Interesting. I had no idea. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I apologize if any polls are listening and I completely f***ed that up. Anyway, this using of the, the Threnody for Victims of Hiroshima, um, which, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's sort of the opposite of an uncommon piece of music to use in, you know, harrowing cinematic sequences. Um, it is unusual for Lynch for sure, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's quite a literal um, needle drop. Um, that being said, the way it's mixed and the way it is timed for impact is uh, truly horrific. But beyond that, this notion that you can pick up fairly quickly on the notion that we are witnessing sort of the, maybe not the birth, but the emergence, uh, maybe the birth, we, do, we don't know yet, but the, um, this cataclysm that, that uh, allows forces like bob to sort of manifest in the world in one form or another um these these are relatively legible concepts that come out of watching these sequences um and then you know also the we i mean through literally getting bob's face and later through literally getting laura's face and um we can talk maybe about some of the more embedded imagery that's less obvious later but it's a it's a very different sort of um, conveyance of meaning than you would get in something like Inland Empire, where you really you can excavate in all kinds of ways. Here, it's it's you can I guess you can still do that here, but it seems like it's trying to convey something more specific. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I, I also think in a lot of ways it 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 does another one of these things that I think Lynch and Frost have been doing really expertly through the whole series, which is points up um, sort of a very sort of set, like a very common set of assumptions about (laughs) what constitutes something like quality television, which basically sort of exists in this um, 
high-level writing that sort of involves more and more increasingly kind of concepts like ambiguity, like uh, character psychologies that are sort of complex and, and can't be unraveled easily, and, and plots that are intricate and complicated, and, you know, this uh, this very famous idea of, like, show, uh, show don't tell, and it, that everything sort of needs to be, not obscure, but needs to be um, difficult and, and complicated in a way for it for it to be, quote, quality television. And, and here, I, I think you're right, Simon, is like, we kind of have the opposite in a lot of ways, in the sense that, like, the, the quote, plot elements of this episode are, are hyper simple. I mean, are really simple. Like, you can basically boil down the last, um, I don't know, the, particularly the middle two sections with the experimental stuff and the, and the giant in this other room space. You can boil that stuff down to, like, a couple of sentences. And if that's all you're interested in doing is getting plot points out of it. Um, and I, I think that... I'll come back to that stuff later. I have a, I have a point about the plot question, but I, I think this idea of like the very legible simplicity of the concepts, you know, it, it's in a certain level, it sort of puts this stuff up to the level of kind of grand art. Like it, it doesn't, it, it's not interested in, um, I don't know, making very complicated, fine points about things. It's, it's interested in taking these sort of like cosmic kind of fundamental structures that we all feel this kinship with that are simple and are straightforward. I mean, this is good versus bad. This is creation and destruction. This is, you know, any number of things that are not that complicated to wrap our heads around. And we can talk about them more later. Um, what, what is going on though is the way in which those things are explored. Like it's the effective phenomenological experiential qualities of that is, is where like the specialness of this lives. And, and that is unusual, right? Like, I mean, none of this is replicable. Just to say that these things are legible or simple doesn't mean somebody else could just do this. This, that's mm -hmm. not the point I'm making at all. So it, it's almost like the, the experiential and effective stuff is more powerful for the simplicity of the concepts that are coming through. You know, we, we keep talking about life and death and, and destruction and rebirth. And at one point, Kate, we're going to need to bring in someone who knows anything about Buddhism because <laughs> I'm sure that's very important to Lynch and really informs a lot of what's going on. And I know precisely Jack about it. Just a future note. Olivia, what do you think? I think that that's, I, th I think what Kate was saying is right on the nose. And I think that, um, I think that's maybe part of the key to why so many people are enjoying this. Um, who might not otherwise like it. You know, it, it's like giving people these very classical narrative concepts of good and evil, but giving them this new affective space to explore and to experience on television. Um, you know, in a way that they're just not often, they're not often granted, they're told, you know, this is there's, there's something too intellectual about kind of experimenting or like diving into stuff like this. Um, it's just so so gratifying and amazing to see people just thirsty for this stuff, but I think mm -hmm. it, it is that general, it is that general openness, that effective openness that that I think in the end is like the key to the success of this episode on like a mass scale and why it was trending globally on Sunday night. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting to contrast sort of. Um... I don't know if you guys spend a lot of time with um, sort of the artsier end of cinephiles and encounter this notion, this very popular notion among especially um, cinephiles who watch a lot of art or experimental film of like the experimental film audience is sort of necessarily very limited and it's meant for like a stratified uh, portion of, of the viewing audience. And basically most people are just too stupid um, and just have no desire. And I, th I think that, you know, stuff like this, I think 
proves that when given a chance, like people are actually very responsive to experimentation with with form and visuals. One of the more popular sort of memes um, that was floating around, um, and when I say meme, I mean just like as a general idea, not like a specific image or phrase, with this notion of Lynch and Frost sitting down, sort of figuring out in advance that everyone was going to want, like it was just going to say, enough with Dougie enough with this stuff and then just sort of like rubbing their palms together and giving people this like here you get a Dougie free episode enjoy <laughs> um but like li- like but, but really beyond like sort of a couple of wishy-washy uh, recaps I sort of read about and one uh, apparently quite irate podcast I heard about generally speaking people have been really receptive and and I think that the um sort of going back to this notion of a show teaching you how to watch it. I think the show's been building up to this in a way like the it sort of, it, it sort of dove in what seemed like head first through a lot of the first two episodes. And then it's sort of been going in this, in the same way that the motion in that, in that convenience store sequence, we need to talk about that um, as well as sort of calling back to the motion in the purple room or whatever you'd like to call that this sort of one step for like two steps forward, one step back type motion um, where th- things seem to be sort of stutter stepping. That seems to be ha- sort of the approach of the whole show where it's, I, I don't mean to beat a dead horse with this, but <laughs> horse. Um, but, you know, it's sort of, it's it's giving and taking almost simultaneously in different dimensions. And I think the fact that, that people are really digging it is, I think, both a testament to how, open and generous the viewing audience has been and patient um but also i think it's some really it's due to some really canny structuring yeah i I was just gonna say that this one thing that i was chatting about with kate before we we hopped on with the podcast is um you know this idea of how people discover experimental art or in particular experimental film and it's a gradual process people aren't just like born with an innate desire to watch experimental film they they learn um they learn over time and they become interested in these things very gradually just by being exposed to as much stuff as possible and for some people that might take years for some people it might take you know a month but i think what's really great about twin peaks the return is that it seems to have sort of in a way concentrated that experience for people in in eight episodes so far so, you know, people who are watching Twin Peaks, for sure, they are interested in slightly more unusual things. That's great. But again, like I said earlier, maybe not of them have ever been exposed to something quite like Part 8. And this is giving them this very interesting framework to be exposed to something like that in a way that might take someone years. You know, like it might take someone years to get to Peter Tchaikovsky or to Brackage. Um, but here they get to it in the context of something hopefully they they love and are tuning into every week. Um yeah, great. like I, I would add to that as well that I think um, I think Olivier is super right and Simon too, like this idea of, of Twin Peaks putting people in a position, Twin Peaks the Return, putting people in a position to experience something like this in, in maybe the best way possible, like with this sort of open mind and this sort of space, like approaching it with a sort of love for the show already. Um, and I think what's kind of marvelous about that is the way in which Lynch is using something like narrative in the service of this stuff, right? Like characters, narrative, story, plot, all of this stuff here becomes effectively a a delivery vehicle to build you up to approaching something like an hour of, of largely experimental images that are not about plot and are not about um, information delivery or character and are much more about 
you know, both a history of filmmaking for the one on one hand, but then also very complicated ideas about American history and uh, I don't know the atom bomb and like visuality and all of these things that I kind of want to dig into a little bit more. But um, you know, these are not necessarily like, like I think again, if you just showed somebody this episode on their own somewhere, they might really like it. But I do think there's something amazing about the fact that that for Lynch, narrative is not high on the priority. Narrative is there, but it's it's best used for him as a vehicle to get people to open up to these other things. And I and I really hope that people who who loved this and got something out of it like you know, try watching something more unusual, like Google Experimental Film, watch some Cherkasky on, on YouTube, watch some Brackage, and there are also really important differences between Brackage and Lynch that we need to address here that <laughs> I think matter to what he's doing, but um, don't be freaked out, people, is what we're saying. Like, it, it makes us film nerds so happy that, you know, like, there might be a reason that people would be excited about unusual cinema and art, so go go forth and find these things. I, I mean, the thing that I the thing that I will add to that, too, which is which is really interesting to me, is there's this idea in the current age, you have this fracturing of audiences, by and large because of, of the way that people consume content and social media platforms, that things become very, very niche. Um, but in a way, this is kind of like this, this global phenomenon, this interest in Twin Peaks recalls you know, periods in the 60s when there's this like modernist art film emergence uh, where people were, were literally lining around the block to see Godal's Weekend on like Berkeley campus or something, you know, like enormous lineups to go see Eraserhead, um, which seems unfathomable today in this day and age. But yet we have something um, with this larger Twin Peaks audience that recalls something like that, even though it's not necessarily, you know, corporeal in a lineup with other people, um, Mm -hmm. but it's another version of it. I want to just take a quick moment since I feel like probably we're at peak attention roughly midway through the podcast. I'm going to, I normally save it for the end, but I'm going to do it now. Two quick notes. One, first of all, the issue of Cinemascope that features Kate's article about the, the uh, first four episodes of The Return, if it's not on local newsstands now, um, and I mean like you're going to need to go to a pretty extensive newsstand, I'm not going to lie. It's not just like your average convenience. You're going to need to find like a dedicated magazine store or order it online or whatever. But if it's not on those very extensive newsstands now, it will be soon or by the time the episode is out. So uh, I highly recommend you hunt it down. I know I will be hunting. And uh, also, if you've been enjoying the show, consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes because it's real, real important. It's only going to get more crowded out there. Or maybe it won't. Maybe some people will have given up now, I hope. <laughs> but uh, we will not be giving up. In fact, we will even be doing a bonus episode, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> okay. So having gotten that content note out of the way... Um, I want to return to a topic that we, that has been brought up a few times, um, and it's sort of different from other things we're probably going to be talking about this week. We've three or four times it's been brought up that Lynch has, has, or relies on these, um, slightly questionable or problematic, everyone's favorite word, um, notions of class. And I think that comes up again in this episode in a major way, but maybe not necessarily a negative way, but maybe <laughs> we, we, we should get into this where this, these apparitions, um, these sort of, these very open, these very hobo like, let's be, let's be real. Uh, I mean like classical image of the hobo, um, you know, these sort of, uh, very dirty drifters, um, who are clearly like interlopers in sort of this, 
picture perfect 1950s um, society. We, we see in the way that we see the uh, we see them sort of accost um, this uh, these the, these people in their car, etc. Clearly coded along class lines. How do we feel about how that ties into sort of um, Lynch's existing relationship with class? And do we feel like it's do we feel like this is the start of like a more substantive ex- exploration, or or is it more just like like eh, stuff on the same lines? I have thoughts about the woodsman in relation to race more than I do class. Uh, I haven't really thought ne- like necessarily about the the class question, although it's obviously there. Um, I I mean I think the most obvious thing to say is like. I, like, Lynch, I think, is aware, like, there's many reasons why you could sort of make the case that Lynch is aware, particularly in his use of these woodsman characters, of, like, this idea of the things that are expelled and repressed within this sort of, like, suburban middle-class white America. And, like, the idea of people of a certain class is part of these things that are, like, not to be looked at when you're in this sort of suburban middle-class area. I mean, and I think, and so, and therefore they're, therefore they're haunting and evil and, like, the thing that, the return of the repressed, right? The thing that has to come back and bubble up in the middle of it. And so, like, in a very obvious way, I mean, I think that that is there. So I I do think there's a sort of, like, a critical attitude towards that in terms of uh, class already, for sure. Yeah, I I haven't thought about the the class angle too much, but Simon, as you were talking, I was thinking about how the New Mexico sequence, even though it's set in, and by New Mexico I mean the sequence at the end, the last third of the episode, the nineteen fifty six sequence. Yeah, fifty six. Um, I think maybe by by the fact that it's shot in in black and white, its general atmosphere, it recalls almost more kind of like classic Great Depression imagery than it does. This like this idyllic sense of the the American fifties, mm-hmm. and maybe there's something to this idea of these figures that emerge from the desert are literally these these figures stricken by poverty, you know, originating in the Great Depression, who just like have never been recuperated by this this forward modern momentum of the United States towards you know this this great period of the nineteen fifties post war period. Um, there is still this like lingering, these lingering after effects of the depression that are just kind of like haunting this town or haunting general American spaces. I don't know if there's any, there's any value to that at all. It just made me think more about the, the general tone or the, the look of that sequence and what it recalls in terms of, you know, pre mm-hmm. pre-war period. And, and these apparitions appear, this appear roughly the same in the present when they appear earlier in the episode, we should talk about this episode and its relationship to time also. Uh, but you know, when, when we see them uh, playing with Cooper's blood or what the hell it is they're doing, or, I don't know how to describe that sequence, but they're, you know, they're clearly, they're, they're dressed and made up very much the same way. Um, anyway, so that's maybe something to keep an eye on as these images no doubt recur. I mean, they, these these images also, of course, connect to the figure that we saw in the jailhouse, and then again, uh, sort of stalking behind the um, the uh, the spook an episode or two ago. But anyway, something to keep track of. Um, um, I th- I do, I have like oh my god! So if I start on this track, I might be rambling for a while. I do have it, to warn do you. it. I have to warn you, audience members. But um, I have like many many pages of notes about this episode. I, I'm. I, knock on wood that this all happens, but I'm probably going to be writing another piece for CinemaScope just about this episode. So hopefully I will be able to figure this out by the time I write it. But um, 
I think the the characters, the woodsman characters, um, are part of like much larger sets of questions that are being set up in this episode that are that's worth trying to start figuring out. So I think the way to start talking about them is again, you have to go back to the the atomic bomb sequence, but um is the the clear sense in which this episode is very much making connections between, you know, the atomic bomb you know, and, and things like cinema, right? I mean, in a, in a certain sense, and people have written about this, this idea that the atomic bomb is basically like a catastrophic form of, of cinema. It's a light weapon. It's a weapon that, that is, um, basically kills people with heat and light. And, and as a result, burns them into these sort of after effects, like shadows and, and, uh, charcoal bodies that are left behind and become, and like, you know, like the atom bomb is an event that's only, it's only registerable in its after effects, you know, like humans can't, can't see, you know, we can't watch an atom bomb. I mean, we can, I guess people can view it in very specific uh, circumstances, but in, you couldn't go into the atom bomb the way that cinema can here. And, and I can come back to that because I think Lynch is working with that as well. But this idea that like this whole latter half of the episode after the atom bomb comes about is when we have these sort of black, charcoal shadow figures appear and i mean sure in a in a literal sense we have maybe this plot development that the atom bomb sort of is this catastrophic gesture that opens up the two worlds and and makes it so the lodge people can come into our world and that sort of stuff on a plot level like that's absolutely there but i think on a much larger level lynch is very much interested in like what the atom bomb means in terms of like the american imaginary this idea of of history i mean i think dennis lynn talks about this in his book that lynch you know, has like talked about growing up in, in 1950s America under this sort of um, spell of like the nuclear war and like nuclear preparation and all of this stuff as, as a major thing. Um, and I think it really matters for him. But anyway, so there's those kinds of questions that are opened up by the atom bomb. And then what's fascinating is we have the rest of the episode is black and white. And we have some of the most like stunning, beautiful cinematography around these extreme kind of shadows of, of bodies, like becoming shadows. And then we have the men, uh, the woodsmen, who who are blackened, right? And they become sort of indistinguishable from each other. They become um, they become indistinguishable from the landscape as well. And for me, there is a way in which these figures end up standing in for like the problematics of, of race around the bomb and around these around Japanese bodies that were destroyed en masse. And this idea that they are the sort of non-human um, reference. Like, they, you know, this idea that they're, they're made to be black from, and from the white perspective, that ends up becoming this, you know, race that in, in the history of, like, the way race has become, has been conceived, like, since the 1600s when race became a thing, you know, bodies that are not white become undifferentiated and become uh, non-human, effectively. They become these sort of destroyed, like, like, I'm trying to, sorry, this is, again, I apologize, this isn't entirely thought out, but, like, the bodies here become organic matter. They become leftover. They become after effects. There are things that are destroyed. And I think there's something important going on with what Lynch is doing in this episode around being aware of particular bodies as being the things that are both made non-human and have to be treated as non-human in order for the bomb to exist. And I think that that matters. And I also think there's something interesting going on here with this character, the main woodsman, who's being played by a Lincoln impersonator on the one hand. And then you also, in the episode, get the little girl picking up the penny and sort of looking lovingly at this image of Lincoln that, of course, stands in in the American imaginary for, like, one of these sort of heroes in this kind of moment of, like, awakening in the United States or something about race relations and all of these things. Uh, Anyway, I'm not sure where all this is going, but I, I do think there's some really interesting stuff there in the episode.
Kate, that's that shit. That's what I knew I could rely on you for. <laughs> uh, Olivia, okay, I you, hope that hopefully that makes some sense. <laughs> did did, th- did that spark some of your some of your synapses as well? No, I'm still just trying to process Kate's Kate's ideas. We've been talking about them for for a couple hours now. I told Olivia some version of this earlier, and Olivia was like, "Uh," <laughs> I was like, "I don't think I figured this out yet," but it's no, it's, it's getting it's there. great. I'm along for the ride. <laughs> Um, I mean, um, I think the other the other main thing that I'm trying to figure out, and I'll get this off my chest, and then we can just talk about fun things after this. But the other thing that I've like really been trying to think about in relation to this episode that I think links up to these points I was just trying to make too, but is I think what's the fascination and kind of like investigation in this episode that Lynch is so interested in, in terms of cinema's ability to um, to like extend the human sensorium right to like to see and hear and experience things that that humans can't and and this is like most obvious here in this idea that experimental film in the middle of this episode is able to give us these sort of like imagined uh documents of what it's like to be inside an atomic explosion which is of course something that would annihilate a human like this would kill any of us right um and and so i think again with the dualism of lynch there's there's two kind of fascinating lines here which is on the one hand because um cinema is able to to do these things that we couldn't do ourselves uh it's able to kind of like take us beyond ourselves right it becomes a kind of visionary device it makes us into visionaries we can see and experience things we couldn't on our own and this includes like this takes us into these the spiritual realm in lynch right the the beyond human and the other worlds and all of these things um and by the way this is the point i wanted to make about this being opposite from people like stan brackage and even hollis frampton who are these like long-standing experimental filmmakers who are amazing but we're very much interested in kind of like how cinema could excavate a sort of uh, purely human vision, like this vision that that is before education, before tutoring, where we could just see purely as a human. Lynch is kind of interested in the opposite of that. He's interested in how, how uh, cinematic vision is non-human. So that's one side of it is this visionary side. But the other side of it is um, the sense in which once you go beyond the human and you go into these other spaces going to the non-human is also the annihilation of the human, right? Like, it's also the the space in which we become, uh, bodies become meaningless. Like, these things that we use as structures for our lives and why we hold individual people special and why we don't kill each other, those things go away. The non-human, like the, the electronic, the automatic, the machinic, these are can be very destructive spaces. These can be spaces that let us off the hook for thinking about humans and like what we owe to each other. And, and I think Lynch is very much getting at both sides of this here, like the, the bomb as something that destroys a certain version of America, but yet he's getting at it through a sort of almost creative, like a, a space that sort of um, equally acknowledges that there are creative possibilities here and there are new possibilities. And I'm not saying he's saying it's a good thing. That's not what I mean, but he references the 2001 sequence, which is like an infamous transition in cinema that's meant to stand in for these like points in kind of human development where we're moving from one thing to another and i think lynch is very much positing this as we may not have gotten better like things may have gotten worse after this and and i i just think all of this is genius like i'm fascinated by all of it i don't know if this is gonna make any sense either but kate please please build on this uh if it doesn't in some way but just this idea of the you know, moving past the human, this idea of the non-human, the annihilation of the human, takes on also just an interesting connotation when you think about the way that that bodies in Twin Peaks have been consumed or riddled by these these weapons, these forces, like Bob taking over Leland, or you know, literally literally Bob spilling out of Doppelkoop at the beginning. Um, that you know, 
bodies are things in Twin Peaks that that have these human connotations, but are like just breaking apart at the seams due to some force within them that is also inextricably linked to what Lynch is presenting us here with the atom bomb and other forms of technological mayhem and destruction. Um, but yeah, I don't know where that, where speak, we go from there. <laughs> speak. Well, here's maybe one place we can go. Um, there was a lot of ink spilled about these sequences as the birth of Bob, um, which, you know, is fair because it's kind of like a huge thing that we never knew to expect from Twin Peaks to affect to essentially get this kind of weird spectral prequel. But um, something that's been discussed a little bit less, but I think is just as, if not more important, is... So, how many times have we had a discussion about how Lynch and or Twin Peaks views its uh, its female characters, its uh, violence towards female characters? Um, and here... And I'm not I'm, I'm not framing this as any kind of absolution or um, necessarily even a commentary um, based on criticism that Lynch has received because I'm not as we've discussed before, I'm not sure Lynch pays any attention to that. Uh, however, the way that sort of the mythology is framed in this episode um, and the way that it elevates Laura, as not simply um, sort of a, a, a victim or, you know, sort of a, an instigating event, but instead as this um, potentially uh, extra human or godlike force sent to serve some purpose is like, to me, that's actually a bigger implication for what the show is doing than the Bob stuff is. Anyone else? I ca- no, I kind of agree with that. And I so I was quite, um, I mean, maybe vindicated is too strong of a word, but I was quite pleased to see that development because I feel like it kind of got at what I was trying to get at when we were talking about Fire Walk With Me. And I was sort of making these claims about how Fire Walk With Me treats Laura at the level of like cosmic tragedy. Like she is, you know, she is given all of the weight of the universe fighting the evils of the universe like she is elevated up in that process and given sort of all of the weight and meaning of this like you know this isn't like obviously on one hand it is it is a girl um, battling these sort of very explicit uh horrors in her life but on the other hand like the show treats that as like giving it the level of of her fighting for good (laughs) like in in a very clear-cut way and i think that um, I was pleased to see that come back here. I'm, I'm really fascinated to see where, where that develops going forward. I also wanted to point out that I think in that sequence where we see this sort of quote birth of Laura or whatever in the fall, I actually think that's maybe one of the first times here that we get one of these spaces that I've been trying to keep an eye out for because they've been largely absent from the new Twin Peaks, which is these quote like spaces of love or whatever, as I've been calling them, which is, are these spaces in which there is this sort of overwhelming, sense of of like joy and optimism and love like the the look that that woman has on her face you know like she's looking up at the giant and she kisses laura and the look on her face for laura and like you know even if you're not literally crying like you feel all of this you feel the love that the show like wants you to feel for these things and uh i was i I think that that very much ties in here as well again with this idea that there is a clear sort of um fight or something between these two general directions in the episode and i was pleased to see that laura is given access to, to one of those sort of directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it's noteworthy that, you know, th- this whole time I've been thinking about Cheryl Lee and sort of her prominence in the credits, as well as 
Laura's face once again that that prom photo that is sort of the the her iconic image being so front and center in the intro even though her the case of her murder has been so sort of tertiary on a plot level uh, to so much of this season um then to have her sort of recentered in this way really has me um again like it's it's that feels to me more significant than, than the notion that um, that Bob has a specific sort of um, origin in space and time. Um, I mean, that is interesting in its own way, but that to me, I think it's it, it radically potentially reframes a lot of um, a lot of our thinking around Laura. Um, yeah, I wanted to add with the Laura stuff. I'm I'm hoping that what that means going forward is that we might. We might get more spaces in which in which Laura isn't a static image because this is something that I've been noticing a lot is that like as as you said, Simon, her her image is very present and in this episode as well, um, and not only in the Golden Ball and and maybe not everybody believes this like Olivia and I are debating whether this is true, but I, I buy it that there people are claiming that there's um, the scene with the convenience store gas station thing that Laura's uh, face when she's wrapped in plastic is is. Um, projected basically on the middle door in like an anamorphic way. So it's a stretched image, but you can see Laura's face on that door. And um, basically just all these things like this idea that Laura is very present as a kind of non-moving, non-present image. I'm very interested to see if that changes going forward, because I mean, like even like you can cast your mind back to like the, the premiere episode where Laura in the red room, like takes off her face and there's nothing but light behind her. And like, I think the show is very much aware of playing with this idea of her as an icon. Like it always has been aware of that, but I'm interested to see if they do anything with that going forward, or if this is going to be sort of like, if, if we're just sort of putting um, like an impressive, not bow, but but new framework on the Laura story, and then we're not going to come back to it or something. I, I don't know. I hope it's the former. Another thing about the the whole sequence with the giant, or as he's credited in the the current series, many question marks, um, is this notion of the show's relationship to time and temporality, which I find so so very interesting. I mean, clearly uh, Carol Strachan is older, like quite a lot older like to the extent that i don't mean to be like insensitive but he's one of those guys that i look at 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 this revival and i think they were lucky to get him <laughs> still because he, he the same with miguel ferrer who obviously passed shortly afterwards and just other people who are just looking really goddamn old and there's no way around it like clearly has aged a lot um which you know happens over time no no judgments obviously um but you know, we're we're looking at this. We, we've just had this sequence of, of of the bomb exploding, and then we move to this other space, which at first seems to be sort of contemporaneous. Again, obviously, we have this other character who's you know got this flapper wear on, and seems very very much sort of of the time or even before. Um, and then, and yet the 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 giant slash question marks has aged, uh, and then you have the fact that they are viewing these events in a movie theater, (laughs) which adds like, that's the point at which I guarantee you that was the moment at which all the experimental film nerds and like people who really love to read into things on a meta textual level, just like did dirty things to themselves because that's really when, (laughs) when that's really when it goes over the top in a good way. Yeah. Um, in like an, I've got, I smell a thesis paper, but, 
um, just th- these notions that, that, like I, you know, it's you. You think of of these spaces being outside of time, and yet they and and yet they they are and aren't in certain ways. And you know, something that Lynch talked about very specifically when he was, um, I forget exactly what the context was, but he was talking about um, the the sequence in which in Fire Walk with Me when um laura's in bed and she gets the and she gets this message from annie who's dying um and it's sort of this you know i have a message from the future thing which lynch said was sort of like one of the major instigating things that he wanted to think about going forward um and i just love the way this series this season has taken these um as doctor who fans would call it timey-wimey concepts and spun them out in like a million different directions with no real like with no eye towards resolving them um and yet sort of letting them exist in this very evocative way that i'm not sure anyone else really has the chutzpah to attempt yeah i mean i think on like a basic level i i think it's it's there's I don't want to say it's a joke because it's not, but there's something funny to be said about the fact that like, you know, Lynch took heat for making a Twin Peaks uh, film that was a prequel and everybody was like pissed off that it didn't sort of tie things up and it didn't move the narrative forward. Uh, and and then here in this episode, we get a prequel that's like 40 years earlier than that, you know, which is like, <laughs> we're going to go even further back. Um, and, and of course, like there is a little bit of plot sort of stuff here, so that's fine. Um uh, but anyway, so like the, there's that part of it with that. And then, but then the, these other questions of time and temporality, I mean, I think there's some fascinating stuff here about even just formally this idea that you've already pointed out, Simon, which is that Lynch is so willing to turn time into something that doesn't move forward and instead kind of stutters constantly and is always sort of going back on itself. Um, there's, there's that element. Uh, there's basically this sort of this other element that like is an effect of the fact that the woodsmen show up all over the place sort of thing, but this idea of a kind of like simultaneity between things like things seem to be happening at the same time, even as, even as we, we know that they're not like that there's years that have passed everything. It sort of flattens all of that. And things just sort of seem to be existing on the same level or something. I I don't know. As you were talking about time, there, Simon temporality. I was thinking about how, like when you watch things like lost highway and Mulholland drive and Inland empire, Time is very much like the key ingredient there. Like that's the matter he's working with is time. And here you, you get like, you get a much more subtle version of that. I think it's, yeah, I, not sure what else to add there except the fact that it's like a very different rendering of that. One more thing I would add about time is that Lynch is very intent on impressing upon you the faces of the dead. Like, and I mean the actually dead, like, you know, we keep seeing, um, we, we keep seeing the face of Bob. Um, someone remind me of the actor's name because it's, it, you, you keep seeing Frank Silva's face. Like it just keeps coming up. It's been in like four episodes now. Um, we, we had literally, uh, Garland Briggs's floating giant head in space. We had the sequence with the log lady, um we have i mean obviously the other actors who've sort of, who've also passed the the sequence with uh, with Warren Frost this is not a thing that is done like this is just not this. if it was if if any other filmmaker had attempted any like look at what happened with this is a really this is going to seem like a really weird point of comparison but look at what happened with Rogue One and Peter Cushing right like when they sort of 
sort of like CGI'd Peter Cushing's face like into that movie, even though he'd been dead since like the early to mid nineties, everyone was like, this is weird and wrong. <laughs> um, but there's like, but there's something about Lynch excavating these faces, like for the purpose of, of this show that feels like there's a sense of honor about it. Like there's, there's a sense that he, he's really, he wants to preserve them. He doesn't want to let them go yet. Um, and I just, I find it really sort of, even though there's nothing about Bob that is touching, I find um, Lynch's sort of loyalty to these faces to be quite touching. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's something, I don't know, This I think this maybe connects to another point that I'm trying to think through in relation to this episode, which maybe goes some way towards explaining what you're getting at there, Simon, which I, I, which I very much agree is this idea that the way Lynch treats actors who are either dead or dying... Um, yeah, it comes from a place of, of remembrance and respect, not from a place of, like, commercial capitalization the way that it does in the Star Wars movies. But, um, you know, like, there's obviously huge differences between those two things anyway. But um, respect, remembrance, wanting to kind of be able to put these people in front of you in a way that materializes them and gives them the space in front of you. And it, one of the things that I was trying to think about, and this connects to a point that I meant to uh, address earlier when you brought it up, Simon, which is this idea that people keep sort of talking about these, this episode is like the birth of evil or the birth of uh, Bob being the birth of evil, which on just a fundamental level, I, I find kind of horrifying. Like, that's not a good statement to make. Like, don't make that statement that this episode is about the birth of evil. Like, the Holocaust is happening at the same time as this and predates this episode. Like, don't, you know, like, let's not get so focused on that, that we forget that, like, humans have been evil to each other for, you know, in, in ways that, uh, the technology of the atomic bomb may be amplified, but wasn't new. Um, so that, that's one statement that I would make there. But I, for, for, for me, I think what's going on with this atomic bomb sequence and what comes afterwards is maybe not the sense that this is the birth of evil, but instead the sense that there's almost like a wish here that the bomb, that this moment in history could materialize, like could that we could all just agree that this is horrible. Like that things, that things are, are terrible. Like that this is this bad, that it is this black and white, that things are, there are good things in the world and there are horrible things in the world. And we could just sort of get to that point. Um, of course that hasn't proven true, right? I mean, history hasn't proven that to be correct, but I feel like that, that almost plays out in the sense in which like Lynch wants to materialize the ghosts of Hiroshima. He wants to materialize these these destroyed bodies and have them be walking around and, and haunting us and terrorizing us. I mean, I think there's, that's, that's a different, that's the flip affect of what you're talking about, Simon, in terms of this respect for these people. But there is, they're of a piece, like this, this wish that we could look death more directly in the face mm -hmm. or something. I don't know. Well, my initial thought when we saw the convenience store was that maybe we were seeing you know, a, a, an image that we're sort of familiar with, even from stuff as popular as the last Indiana Jones movie, is this notion of uh, nuclear test spaces with empty towns or like, you know, fake towns to see what the what how the impact hits, what the after effects are. So when I saw the the convenience store, I thought, OK, maybe that's supposed to be like this, uh, this set or this fake space um, that is um, that is meant to be left behind but that doesn't seem to be what's happening. Like it seems to be a real space and it's in, in fact, it even seems to be a plot related space, um, which, you know, we lived above a convenience store, blah, blah, blah. And there isn't like a very obvious space where someone would live, but you do see that there are stairs heading up from the right side of the building. So, I mean, you would think, and let's be real, just the fact that it says convenience store, 
um, is kind of, is maybe kind of a signal, but um, you know, at, at, that, that was my initial thought of like, okay, so we're seeing sort of the, these, um, these deliberate ruins, but no, like it's, it seems like that's, that's not the case that we are meant to have this sort of like desiccated actual human space with these um, nuclear hobo ghosts. I, I'm going to come up with a better term. I mean, there's a tension there in that whole last part of the episode between, I think, those two poles that you're pointing out, which is this idea of the imagined, um, you know, like uh, Garden of Eden version of America, right? This sort of small town 50s America where everything is girls in, in bobby socks and, and hoop skirts and uh, diners and radio jockeys, right? Like, there, which is, is, on the one hand, like, tends towards the kind of... Um, typographic for lack of a better word like like this these examples that don't mean anything like they become idealized Mm -hmm. images on the one hand but then on the other hand you know lynch always manages to make them feel sort of lived in and specific on the other hand so there's this sort of tension between i think the two poles there um yeah i don't know maybe another thing that we we really haven't discussed like a lot of the particulars about the the 1956 sequence but I thought it was fascinating, um, the couple that we meet, the boy and girl, um, the girl who may or may not be Sarah Palmer, the boy who we can reasonably deduce is not Leland. Yeah, we haven't really discussed anything about that sequence or its uh, conclusion with the um, frog penis locust sort of bloodily crawling across the desert and then into the girl's mouth. Um, Simon, you somehow managed to make that just grosser. (laughs) Is. You went I there. Think, well, you say somehow. I think we know exactly how. Um, <laughs> but I'm sorry. It's just where my brain went. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I don't know what to make of that sequence or how to interpret it. Uh, I was hoping y'all could do better. Oh, God. I, I, I will admit that this is a completely half-formed idea. Do it. But, do it. But my, my impression, as soon as I saw that thing hatch out of the egg, I thought back to... The first time we see Gordon Cole's office, we have this enormous photograph of the atomic bomb behind him. And then we cut mm-hmm. to Miguel Ferrer with an, an enormous portrait of Kafka behind him. I, I, so in this episode, it was like a return to that, that office. There's the atomic bomb, and you've got, this, you've got this bug which recalls the metamorphosis. That's all I've got. It's the thing that came into my brain, but there was some weird connection that was made there to Gordon Cole's office and those two things that happened in the episode. That's more than I got, man. So bravo. It also like that, all that stuff really, I think it, that whole sequence really muddies um, maybe what comes before in the, the giant sequence where in the giant sequence, you know, you, you sort of are able to believe that there's these very clear good and bad lines. Like we have the, the giant, we have the um, Bob on the one hand being born who's evil. And then on the other hand, we have the giant making Laura uh, and these are supposed to be these sort of counterbalancing forces. And it all seems very neat. And then you get to the stuff in the desert and all of those kinds of boundaries like break down. Like we, like this idea that, um, and again, this is all speculative. So people listening to this in the future, this all might be totally wrong, but like, you know, the general agreement right now seems to be that this egg creature thing is, is Laura Palmer. Um, and so if that is the good side, I mean, A, it's sort of fascinating that Lynch births it out of this really, like, disgusting, gross thing, like, molesting this girl's mouth. You know, like, it's like, they're really, there's some gross stuff in there. Um, good is not on the side of the pretty in that particular scenario, um, mm-hmm. on the one hand. And then also, on the other hand, you have this scene with the... Um, 
the head woodsman, like Lincoln Woodsman, uh, you know, murdering people in the uh, radio station. And it seems to turn people sleepy uh, in the town. And this is the thing that allows the Laura thing to get in the girl, presumably. Um, and mm. so there is a way in which like all of these sort of idealized divisions really break down once we're on the ground. It's unclear who is good and who is bad, like who's working for what end and what's going on, all of mm-hmm. that stuff. Can I just say, if there are people from the future listening to this podcast, are we okay? Are you okay? Is everything okay? <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. Anyway, I just... I'm also I'm also going to just throw out totally at random that I'm I'm very happy we can now refer to the horrifying woodsman's uh, sleepy time poem as Kate just <laughs> called it. <laughs> yeah, let's maybe. What what have we got? What have we got for the f-ing poem? Because <laughs> I just don't know. <laughs> I mean, obviously, like some of the obvious connections we can draw is you know horses. Horses are a thing. <laughs> Horses, horses are a thing. They've anyone can anyone top that? I'm just adding on to horses as a thing now. But um, the there is like the amazing final shot of the episode uh, is the woodsman walks out of the radio station and sort of off into the darkness. And because I'm not sure if it's like a digital effect or what, but the landscape looks very. Um, odd like it looks very static or something and the guy walks out into the dark and then over the credits for a few minutes anyway you hear like this these like really sort of unsettling sounds of horses winning and you're like oh my god what is he doing which is horses if you were watching uh i've sort of noted this before but um on crave tv which is the easiest way to watch in canada um if you pause and then unpause the episode it automatically turns captioning on so I, I've seen a lot of the episode, a lot of these episodes with closed captioning on, and so the end of the episode is just horse whinnying continues, <laughs> which was really it didn't it didn't make it less unsettling. Just throwing that out there. Kate, you were saying that you didn't you didn't find it quite as as evocative as some as some of the the more poetic phrases that we have in the original series or in Firewalk with me, but maybe that's just because of the fact that it's just bludgeoned into you like over and over and over and over again. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe. I, like, there is, a, there is a really common sort of sense uh, throughout all of Twin Peaks and, and Lynch's writing generally, like the films that Lynch has written specifically. But, um, like, you know, Lynch's, Lynch's approach to language mirrors what I was trying to say about, like, his use of his sort of desire to make cinema move beyond the human. I mean, Lynch, Lynch uses language not to, like, refer to, like, to actual things or refer to objects. Lynch wants to use language to point beyond what language can do. Like, he's more interested in coming up with words that lead us... Mm-hmm beyond what is here and like outside of ourselves into these sort of unknown spaces. And I mean, and I definitely think the poem works at that level and it does that. It, it, it definitely isn't, I think working in the same register as something like, you know, uh, darkness, uh, futures past, uh, the magician longs to see, which is this poem that twin peaks people have burned into their brain. I mean, I think this is the water and this is the well it, it's something interesting, but it, it's not, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just it doesn't not have the iconic value. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Not yet. Uh, anyway. We need to start thinking about ending this podcast. Not quite yet, but at some point in the relatively near future. I'm going to throw out the same prompt I did last week. Burning thoughts, concerns, questions, uh, emotions, feelings that you'll you'll die if you don't get out. Um, I have I have a quotation that I want to read uh, as we wrap up. But before we get there, I wanted to... I, I, we didn't really end up talking very much about the opening sequence, which is the sequence when... Uh, 
evil coop is is mauled or, or whatever or helped by the um the, mm-hmm. the go the, 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 the nuclear hobos as you have named them simon and um I, I think i think olivier is right is that that episode that that sequence kind of gets lost uh once you get into the rest of the episode and it's a shame because it really is it really is like kind of a, a beautiful sequence i mean it's it's horrifying and it's upsetting but it's gorgeous and i it's it's difficult to figure out why uh i mean a lot of it uh, and olivia and i talked about this when we first watched it but a lot of it is i think related to the way in which lynch is playing with with audience expectations around his uses of sound i mean i think because that scene is so could be very brutal, right? It's supposed to be violent. You have Ray screaming and it's supposed to be sort of very horrifying. You almost expect that Lynch is going to kind of assault you with the soundscape, that there's going to be this sort of intense attack of like drone and screech and all of this stuff. And instead Lynch pulls back and does basically the opposite, um, which is that he, he creates this soundscape that feels like you almost aren't hearing it quite right. Like it's almost below your register of perception. It's like there's a void there or something. And it, it like sucks you in, in this sort of intimate way into the space that's very different than assaultive, like, uh, violence or something. I I don't know how to explain it, but it it makes it beautiful in this very weird way. The sound design is nothing like, obviously, what we get with the explosion. It's, it's, it's much more sort of ambient and, uh, and, and romantic than obviously the, the, the Pendereski is. Not, not only in terms of sound, but, I think that sequence has some of the absolute most beautiful editing I've ever seen Lynch do. I think the way that he's cutting between these these dancing, horrifying figures, and you know this 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 motif, this visual motif he loves so much, which is the strobe uh, in these these darkened spaces. Um, it's just it it is an absolutely unsettling effect, and it's so much driven by his cutting in there, which I think is just completely astounding. Um, but I wanted to say that I was so happy in this whole episode to start with the sequence, which is, has such a radical use of sound. And by God, sound is just an unbelievable element of this whole thing. Like you, it, it is, it is not topped in that that first ten minutes. Like it goes on, like just I, the sounds of these crushing skulls and these scraping sounds that are laced all over the place. I've yeah some. Crazy, crazy sound work. One thing I wanted to say was I, I think people who are interested in, uh, in in trying to make sense of this episode and are out kind of reading things about it, and um, I, I sort of wanted to make the point that I think if you're if you're approaching Twin Peaks in the spirit of Lynch and like that that maybe Lynch wants you to approach it in, um, beware beware of people who are reading this episode only in terms of plot and who are approaching it so quickly and so excitedly to just turn everything and like turn everything into a series of narrative moves and and really brush over the choices that are going on in this episode. I mean, I I find it sort of mystifying when when people focus so specifically on on the plot information only. And I and I think that stuff is there certainly and there's a lot of fun to be had kind of figuring it out, but you know, maybe don't don't discount the choices here to make an entire hour long episode that expands, you know, two or three plot points into a kind of amazing series of sonic and visual uh, images that are, are valuable in their own right. You know, like this episode isn't, it's not an accident that we have all of these other things going on besides plot. And I, so I just say, you know, look for stuff that wants to engage on that level with the show, because I think that's what it's asking you to do. So yeah. anyway. do not, do not deny yourself the affective pleasures of experimentation. <laughs> the absurd mm-hmm. mysteries of the forces of existence yes. or whatever that is. <laughs> All right, so this is the last thing I wanted to add, which is that I found this quotation and it it blow it like it just bowled me over how 
how much you could read this quotation and think that what Lynch and Frost were doing in this episode is almost an adaptation of this quotation. And it's from um, a, a guy named Thomas Farrell, who was the deputy commanding general on the Manhattan Project and was there and witnessed this Trinity explosion that, you know, these this show episode just depicts. Um, and I, I just thought it was amazing, this move from the description into this kind of experimental description of, of visual experience. So here's the, here's the quotation. The lighting effects beggared description. The whole country was lighted by a searing light with the intensity many times that of the midday sun. It was golden, purple, violet, gray, and blue. It lighted every peak, crevice, and ridge of the nearby mountain range with a clarity and beauty that cannot be described but must be seen to be imagined. And, you know, Lynch lets us imagine it and see it here, which I think is crazy. The last thing I'm going to add is actually just another question for y'all. So let's say I'm a new viewer. Like I've, I've, I watched Twin Peaks and maybe I've seen a Lynch feature or two. And then I've watched The Return and I've just seen this episode and my mind has exploded. So, uh, what would be some some filmmakers or some films you'd recommend? That's a really good question. Yeah, that is uh, that is really good. Olivier, do you want to start, oh my God. or do you want me to? No, no, take take crack it. So I'm going to think about it for a minute. You know, you know, the first one I would say uh, is, and I'm hopefully going to talk about this in the Cinemascope piece because I think there's some connections here. But I would say uh, find the film Hiroshima Mon Amour by um, Alain Rene from a screenplay by Marguerite Duras. It's a French film from 1959, and I actually think that even if Lynch isn't making an explicit reference to it here, although I think he might be, there are connections uh, that happen in the experimental sequence in the middle here when you get the shots of the ash or the like the confetti falling from the sky, uh, which is clearly a visual reference to like nuclear fallout. Um, and for anybody who's seen Hiroshima Monomore, the opening uh, section of that film uh, is close-ups of bodies covered in this nuclear ash as it falls. And you get again this question of like bodies being made indistinguishable by the sort of nuclear presence. And and it's one of the most amazing, beautiful films ever made. Uh, it's about sort of the question of representation, the question of memory, politics, history, and it's deeply, deeply experimental in its form and its approach to time. It's beautiful. Uh, that, you know, uh, Brackage... Oh, I got. I, I should have looked up more experimental filmmakers to reference here. Tchaikovsky as well. Tchaikovsky yeah. is one. I think another filmmaker I would mention here in a, in a particular film of his, which uh, I think is very linked to the convenience store sequence, um, is an Austrian filmmaker by the name of Martin Arnold, oh, Martin Arnold who yeah, totally. made this very incredible film called Passage à l'acte, um, which is a, a radical deconstruction of a film with Gregory Peck. I can't remember which to, one. It's to Kill a Mockingbird. It is to Kill a Mockingbird. Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Um, but he, as his, I'm reading up his Wikipedia page, uh, described as, as a filmmaker known for his obsessive deconstruction of found footage. And there's something very similar to the way that Lynch uh, plays with with time and it's kind of slivering in that sequence um, in Martin Arnold's work. Uh, so check that out, I would say. Um, for the for the person that we keep saying Cherkasky, his name is impossible to spell. So Google the film Instructions for a Light and Sound Machine or Outer Space. Google those two films and you should be able to find his name. And they're available online and they're stunning. Stunning. Yeah. Um, there are maybe, there are two sort of left field additions I would throw in there that are maybe not as, um, highbrow as some of the things that have been referenced here. I'm not throwing shade at anyone. It's just a fact. <laughs> Something that I actually meant to bring up weeks and weeks ago was the, the sequences where Cooper is sort of like flailing on a floor of stars. 
one of my favorite images um, from the new season really, really made me think of um, the recent trilogy by Don Hertzfeld. He works in animation and his stuff is, is a lot more sort of openly humorous than Lynch's, but a his it's really accessible um, in like a few different ways and uh, really funny and also has shares some of the same concerns about mental and bodily decay uh, and temporality as well as um, some of the actual effects and these co- this concept of you know universes ripping open, et cetera, kind of um, evokes some of what Lynch is up to here. Um, another thing I would uh, quickly bring up, and again, this is not like a linear relationship, but it's just something that I thought of with uh, the show sort of flashing back to the 1940s and 50s this week is uh, Craig Baldwin's Tribulation 99, um, which I think is just... Do you guys know what I'm talking no, about? I don't know this. It's a it's a 1991 slash 1992. The the year seems to differ based on who you ask. Um, found footage montage documentary about um, sort of like constructing an alternate history of Earth based on cons- like a mix of real and and imagined conspiracy theories and like alien invasions and stuff. Anyway, so if 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 you if you like the idea of um, sort of experimental film and toying with American mythos as this episode does, um, I would highly, re- and you can see it on, um, you can at least see a big chunk of it on YouTube. That's tribulation 99 alien anomalies under America by Craig Baldwin. I caught it a couple of times in film school and I always just thought it was a blast. And I think it's, if, if we, I know, I know there was some crossover with Alex Jones a few weeks ago and there's something there as well. Um, so yeah, I guess a few, a few fun recommendations. Your y'all's were definitely more germane. I just thought that those might be fun for people anyway yeah everyone likes fun uh yeah except me usually (laughs) anyway well apparently apparently simon everybody likes experimental film i mean who knew this is great yeah right yeah (laughs) yeah anyway um you can find me on twitter at hollow minds uh you can find kate on twitter at cinnamon that's c-i-n-e-m-e-n-t olivier can anyone find you online or you You can find me nowhere so as you are already all too tragically aware we have no new episode of Twin Peaks this week. This is sort of another aspect of this episode and its timing that I think is fascinating. We've got a whole extra week to chew on this episode. So what are we doing next week, Kate? Uh, our plan, as it currently stands, is to do uh, a, like an off-brand episode where we are going to have a, a, a couple of friends of, of Olivia and is on, actually, who are sort of very, very big Twin Peaks fans, uh, but are not necessarily sort of experts, and they want to come on and kind of like ask questions, and, and we'll have a discussion, like general questions about the show, things we maybe haven't addressed on the podcast before. And so we wanted to invite any other people who listen to this podcast who have questions or like topics that they would love to hear us talk about and, and or at least attempt to talk about um you should definitely send them our way on on twitter or however works best and uh, and we'll we'll see what we can get into this discussion for next week yeah again i'm on twitter at hollow minds kate is at cinnamon c-i-n-e-m-e-n-t if you find kate more approachable which i totally understand um and yeah you can send in your questions i will facilitate them and kate will answer them oh that's what's going to happen i don't think i will do that (laughs) (laughs) anyway thank you olivier thank you kate i hope you all have enjoyed this and um if you don't tune in for our uh special weird off-brand episode next week do at least join us two weeks from now when we get into part nine whatever the hell that's gonna bring yeah and uh, thank y'all so much for listening once again do rate 
and or review the show on iTunes. Whatever country you reach iTunes from, huge, huge help. Oh, crap, one more thing. The show's also now on SoundCloud. Hey, so I hear that's how a lot of the kids listen to these things now. So, you know, if SoundCloud's more convenient for you, we're also there. Look up the uh, the Sorted Cinema page on uh, on SoundCloud. You'll find us there along with some other fine content, most of which I am, I confess I am also involved in. Anyway, thank you, Kate and Olivier, and everyone have an excellent week. We'll speak to you later. Be aware I feel in me. How do you-